The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Today's guest is Donald Kettle. He is a professor of public affairs at the University of Austin and the author of The Divided States of America, Why Federalism Doesn't Work. This is my first conversation about federalism, but it's also a conversation about inequality. Don writes, federalism has fed inequality in the nation and that inequality has eroded trust in government. We'll talk about history, current events, even the pandemic. This is a wide-ranging conversation, but some of the key lessons will involve the complexities in American policy due to our federalist system. Francis Fukuyama, Amartya Sen, and others have emphasized state capacity has an outsized influence on quality of life and economic growth. The pandemic has brought some of these issues to the forefront of our everyday life. In the end, though, don't let the title give you the wrong impression. Don is excited about federalism. This is a big passion of his. Hopefully you'll find our discussion enjoyable as well. Here is my conversation with Don Kettle. Don, welcome to uh, the Democracy Paradox. It is great to be with you here today, Justin. Uh, well, thank you so much. Love the book, The Divided States of America. Um, really excited to talk about federalism. I haven't talked about that in a long time. So um, let's uh, dive right in here. Um, I, I want to ask you something that's really direct about the book. Um, you, uh, a persistent theme of the book is, is federalism has been challenged from the beginning, um, although we've overcome some of those challenges. Uh, you write, though, that the apparent simplicity and clarity of the Tenth Amendment began to dissolve as soon as the government began to govern. Um, why doesn't federalism work? Well, it's a great question. And to break it out in a couple pieces, the first is this Tenth Amendment thing. And at the very beginning, it's important to remember that we, after all, created the country as a collection of United States. And it wasn't altogether clear at the beginning that the states were going to be united. But we had the, the first version of our efforts, the Articles of Confederation, they just didn't work well at all. And so the founders got back together in Philadelphia for what amounted to 2.0 with an effort to try to find some way to create some stability in the government. So they, they wrote the Constitution, and Madison took the lead, and everybody said afterwards, whew, we finally got that straightened out. And it turned out, well, no, they didn't because the states before ratifying said, you don't really say anything about what kind of power we have. It's all about the federal government. And there was a pushback. Well, we sort of pretty much have that sorted out, don't we? Because the Constitution says what the federal government's powers are. States push back again saying, well, unless we get the Tenth Amendment, we're not going to ratify it. And this amendment 
says that any power not explicitly given to the federal government is reserved to the states. So that seemed pretty clear. If it's not written in the Constitution, then it goes to the states. But then it turns out that there are some phrases in the Constitution, including providing for the general welfare, that create an enormous opportunity for putting the federal government into almost everything. So from education to roads and a whole collection of things, right off the bat, turns out that the tensions between the federal government and the states, the question of where to draw the line was something that came in from the very, very beginning. So from, from the beginning, two things are clear. One is federalism really matters. That is figuring out how to allocate power between the federal government and the states. And the second is we've never been very good about drawing a line because we've had this constant battle from the beginning about where that line ought to be. Okay. A lot to unpack there. Why don't we take a step back and, and let me ask you if you can explain a little bit about how federalism has changed in the United States over time. You talk a little bit about uh, the beginnings and the origins, but in your book, you obviously get into a lot of different periods of federalism. Can you kind of give us a little bit of a synopsis as to how it's changed and where we are today? Sure. And let me, let me just walk everybody through this because the, the other point about federalism is that it's just not a dynamic feature. It's not only everywhere, but it hasn't been the same thing at any time throughout our history. And one of the things I argue in the book is that there really have been four different generations. There was the, the time with the 10th Amendment where we sort of thought we had a sense that we could draw boundaries around the functions by sets of rules and regulations, which worked until it didn't, which was almost right away. And tensions began building to the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, the North won. Well, that settled things once and for all, didn't it? We really made it clear that the federal government was prime. But then it turned out that the states found a way to push back, especially in the South, with the evolution of a separate but equal doctrine. And that really endured until the mid-1950s with Brown versus Board of Education and the decision that ended segregation in the schools. And... Well, that was really a period where the boundaries were shifting back and forth by the kinds of practice with bargaining and efforts to try to rebalance things. Then what seemed to be the case after Brown versus Board of Education and with the rise of civil rights is that, okay, finally, we have this straightened out. Finally, we've got a set of clear rules and regulations. Finally, it's clear the federal government is supreme in issues like civil rights. And it seemed with that point, we had a golden age with civil rights with model cities, with Medicare, with Medicaid, and a whole collection of big time programs that seem to put the federal government in the center and at the top with states working in close partnership. And just at the very time that we seem to have gotten that taken care of, there was a fourth generation that opened up a new series of bargains, especially around issues of healthcare. And the paradox is at the very moment that we seemed finally to have things straightened out, we've ended up creating a system that is, in fact, driven us further apart as time has gone by. We've created a system that's increased inequality among the states so that not only is federalism something that is the source of inequality in so many ways, but where it's increasing the amount of inequality as time has gone by. And that's in many ways what I was kind of surprised myself to discover turns out to be the most important reality of federalism in the age that we find ourselves in now. I, I was surprised at how the book was almost just as much about inequality as it was about federalism, to be honest with you. 
Um, he wrote extensively about inequality. And if you really think about it, the, the different stages of federalism you take us through oftentimes are about inequality, even through these different stages. Um, the issue of slavery is about inequality as well in a lot of ways. And you emphasize um, economic inequality that we have today. Um, but I found it interesting that the inequality exists not just you know, um, within the states, but also between the states. And you mentioned how um, the quality of services that the citizens receive varies widely. The variation depends on where they live. And some states tend to rank high in quality of services while others tend to rank low. Federalism matters. And as a citizen, what you get depends on where you live. Um, the, the thing that strikes me about this, though, is that it's often the states with the fewest resources, which are most resistant to the federal policies designed to share those resources. Can you help us understand that a little bit? Mississippi is a great example. You actually emphasize how they've got lower health outcomes on a number of levels, and yet they're among the states most resistant to healthcare policies at the federal level. Yeah, that is just a remarkable piece. And uh, as I started rooting through this, the question was, well, why does federalism matter? And why does giving the state's authority over making policy decisions matter? And it turns out, well, it matters a lot because states go in different kinds of directions. And it turns out to apply on the environmental policy, in crime, in healthcare, in prisons, in education. But more than anything else, and especially in healthcare and in those programs that are designed to even out the differences between the states. And you're right, one of the paradoxes here is that states that have tended to be more aggressive about the role of government and more supportive of a growing federal role also places where the I've tended to have as a state more advanced in the way in which things have happened. And on the other hand, states that have tended to resist the expansion of federal power, to resist, for example, the expansion of the Affordable Care Act, are also the places where the outcomes are less good. And I think it's a product of the fact that those states where the outcomes are not as good are places that don't believe much in government. And to be able to, to make Advances in government policy, you have to believe in government to begin with. People who have, uh, have argued against that have tended to resist the expansion of government power, not only in Washington, but also in their own individual communities as well. And so the two go hand in hand. But what that means is, as you pointed out, it is the case that the government that we get depends on where we live. And that's the situation that in many ways, I think would have, would have really surprised and worried the founders because, yes, they wanted to make sure that state and local governments really had autonomy, but they also wanted to make very sure that the needs of the citizens were taken care of. That's why, after all, we went from the Article Confederation to the Constitution to begin with. So I think they would have been very worried about this fact that so often there's a resistance to government doing the kinds of things that we decide that government ought to do. You write a lot about healthcare within the fourth generation. And I found myself um, thinking a lot about a uh, recent book, uh, Deaths of Despair um, by uh, Angus Deaton. And I, I forget the other author's name, but um, it just reminded me a lot of that, how some people, how different people are, are being affected differently in terms of healthcare outcomes. 
Um, and your book kind of tied it together by kind of linking that to, hey, it depends a lot on where you live. You mentioned, um, just to kind of drive home this point, you mentioned in your book, life expectancy is highest in Hawaii at 81.5 years compared with Mississippi, where it is just 74.91 years. Infant mortality is twice as high in Mississippi as in Massachusetts. And there are eight times as many drug overdose deaths in West Virginia as in uh, Nebraska. I, I know a lot of people have talked about uh, Medicare for all as a, uh, as a policy solution. Um, you mentioned some of the issues for uh, Medicaid and Medicare, where states are expected to do a lot within those in terms of administration, in terms of even supplying some of the money. Um, do you think that is, since healthcare is such a big part of our current generation of federalism, do you think that a plan of universal healthcare would solve some of these problems in the current generation of healthcare or of federalism, or do you think that they'd exacerbate them? Yeah, and let me let me unpack that a bit if we could, because first of all, it really is important, I think, to look at issues of domestic policy, and especially in terms of the, the prism that healthcare provides, because it not only is one of the most fundamental things having to do with just our the, the quality of life that we have, but also it is the, the most vicious battleground for trying to set up the, the boundaries between the governments and what government itself ought to do. And, and a lot of people have said that it exacerbates economic inequality long-term. Um, well, it it and, does. And, and all yeah. you need to do to understand that, to make that point, is to look at the differences that also flow out in the government's reaction and efforts to try to deal with COVID-19, which I think we ought to come back to in just a moment here. But healthcare more generally is this prism that breaks everything out and the thing that's important to recognize is that, especially with Medicaid, and again, the difference between Medicare and Medicaid is that Medicare is the program for people, for the most part, over the age of 65, and it's a federally government-administered program, although not a federally government-delivered program. It's done through private providers and through a vast system of contracts that are responsible for managing it. But Medicaid is a partnership between the federal government and the states, it is aimed at people who are lower income, and it is a program that is not a program, but it's really 51 different programs, different program in every state because every state makes its own decision. There's a kind of basic core of what the program provides, but then every state creates its own cafeteria of services, and what happens in one state may not be at all the same as what happens right across the state border. And then on top of that, the states, when they do it, do it through a vast network of contractors in addition. And so it's federal, it's state, it's private. It's this really messy conglomeration. And one of the reasons why we spend so much money on healthcare in the country, but while why our healthcare outcomes are not as good as we ought to have, is that we spend so much money just in administering this incredibly complex system. And so what that also means is that because this, we've got healthcare that's a, a kind of very complex cafeteria that where the the meals that are served depends on where it is that you live and where it is that you go that the states that have either less money to begin with or less interest in trying to provide the services to begin with through government provide less good quality of health care to their citizens and that's a large engine driving the growing inequality in the country so the question is if we had medicare for all would that help to solve the problem and 
the, the, the problem here first is political. I mean, is there the political will for the government to try to embrace such a, a wide scale expansion of its power? And in Canada, the answer was yes. In the United Kingdom, the answer is yes. In Germany, the answer is yes. In the US, the answer has been no. And because in many ways, we still have this deep distrust about government and government power, and it's hard to get political support for doing it. It's, uh, there are vast lobbies on top of that that are, have strong interest in trying to keep the, the game going as it is, and people don't want to be told what it is they've got to be able to do when they practice medicine, and people don't want to be told what they want to do when they receive medical care. Uh, leaving yeah. aside the, the Medicare for All, and one of the things one point I want to make is sure. that Medicare for All is a, is a really complicated thing, a partisan issue. But the fact is, if we want to do something about the fundamentals of inequality in this country, we have to decide which programs that we bring to the federal government, and healthcare has got to be at the top of the list, and which other things that we allow individual state and local governments to do, and and maybe we make infrastructure that question. But we've, we've got to do a much better job of sorting out who does what. Your book was interesting, though, because, like, look, it's easy to talk about universal health care and just simply say there isn't the political will to be able to do it. Your book added another nuance for me in terms of the debate that it's not as simple as just saying, hey, let's have the government provide it. There's an administrative component that's different than in other countries because the way that we've structured a lot of our healthcare programs has been through partnerships with states. And there's a lot of complexities to getting all the states on board and getting that to be able to work. Um, is that something that we should just shift entirely to the federal government? You mentioned Reagan wanted to do that with Medicaid at one point. And I thought that was really interesting, like a shift of, hey, the federal government will cover Medicaid and then the states will cover everything else in terms of social welfare. Yep, that was a, the, the great deal that to this day, most people have forgotten, but the, the deal that the states could have had and didn't is Reagan, believe it or not, offered to assume all the costs of Medicaid. And in exchange for that, the states would pick up all the costs for welfare. And the states said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to go for that. You're trying to sucker us in because that's not a good deal. And Almost instantly, as soon as they rejected, they began to realize that they made a terrible mistake, financially at least, because Medicaid is in many places the fastest growing item in state budgets. It's been a kind of Pac-Man that's gobbling up everything out there that squeezes out other parts of the system. And then when it comes to questions of the Affordable Care Act and other issues like that, it then further complicates the problem of trying to solve it. So that was, in many ways, a, a great moment and opportunity foregone put forward by a conservative that would have made a vast difference in how things work. And the administration of the system is something that we, we just don't stop to realize and understand how complex it truly is. My, my single favorite statistic about the federal government is that Medicare plus Medicaid plus the Children's Health Insurance Program. So these are the, the federal government's big three healthcare programs, if you leave the VA out, account for 25% of the federal budget. One out of every $4 goes to Medicare and Medicaid or children's health insurance. The number of people administering 25% of the entire federal budget is about 4,000 people. So we have about 50,000 students here at the University of Texas. We have a staff trying to take care of them, about 25,000. So we have a 
team of people running the University of Texas at Austin that is six times larger than the people who are in charge of managing a quarter of the entire federal budget. Trillion dollars at play here. And so that's just stunning. What that says is that we've offloaded a lot of the responsibility to the states. The states have the same problem. They've offloaded a lot of this to private sector contractors and private deliverers. And it is administratively an incredible mess, incredibly complicated. And trying to simply unravel it is something that in itself would be an effort, a monumental accomplishment. That's one of the reasons why the Affordable Care Act has proven to be so difficult to try to both set up and make work and then to reform because of the underlying complexity. It's what happens under the hood that says so much more about what really is going on in healthcare in this country right now. Now, one of the things that was interesting in the book was how different states have different levels of state capacity because they've invested into it and different levels of inequality. California comes up as something that you write quite a bit about in the Californiaization. I think that's the way how I would say right. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you talk about them using federalism to help reshape environmental policy through waivers. Um, for instance, you say they have been uh, so successful not only in framing the state's policy, but far more important because the state's waivers have fundamentally reshaped national policy without changes in federal law or regulation. Um, federalism, states' rights, typically portrayed as um, beliefs of the right, like conservatives. Has the political left, have liberals gained uh, more from federalism in the fourth generation? Well, it's certainly the case that, that the left has found a, a different way of playing the game. And that's happened, especially in California, which left on its own would be one of the largest countries in the world anyway. But the people in California for a generation have said, you know what, we're not so sure that the feds are really looking out for our interest. And on top of that, we look out our windows and we can't see the mountains and the hills or the ocean. So we've got to do something about our air. And so they started a series of of efforts to try to get waivers from existing federal regulations to try to impose tougher standards. And the way that the, this waiver process is really complicated, but in a nutshell, the way it works is that there's federal law that says that you have to do, say, X, Y, and Z, certain standards for air quality. But there's nothing, and most of the laws uh, provides a way of allowing the states to be tougher and do that under a waiver with an experiment as long as the outcomes are at least at least as good. And so we did that. That's how we got welfare reform in Wisconsin. But in California, it has happened, especially from the left. And it's happened with a way to try bit by bit by bit to increase air quality standards, to increase the standards for auto emissions for cars, to try to put catalytic converters in cars, to try to restrict outdoor burning from outdoor barbecues and a whole collection of things. And so what happens is if you've got such a large market California says that we've got a, we got a waiver to be able to meet our air pollution standards, which are going to be tougher than the feds. Then you've got to make a car that was, is capable of being able to do that with catalytic converters, with higher quality, uh, with lower emissions and higher quality controls on, on air quality. And to be able to sell a car in the state, then you've got to be able to find a way to produce a car that does that. Once an auto manufacturer decides to do that, because it's such a large market that you can't ignore, you don't want to have one car for California and a different car you sell across the line in Nevada because economically it'd be a mess. And some other states have also 
about a dozen have, have also jumped on the California bandwagon. So now you've got this enormous market that you can't ignore. And so we've got changes in policy being driven from the bottom up instead of from the top down and driven from the left to the center, all as a result of California's aggressive efforts to doing this. And now they're saying that they will be imposing requirements that all cars have to be emission free and do that within about 15 years. So that's a, that's a huge change for auto manufacturers too. The Trump administration has been pushing back against that ferociously because they don't like the idea of having a blue state set policy for red states across the country. But there's an enormous battle going on right now over whether or not that can in fact be done. And California so far has been winning most of the battles. In part, they've been winning it in the courts, but they've also been winning it in the markets because car manufacturers simply don't want to be involved in making cars they can't sell. I've been reading a lot about that in the New York Times. I mean, there was a headline article about a year ago specifically about that, about the cars and the environmental regulations. I did find it interesting, though, because it's easy to make the leap that California, they have 55 electoral votes, which um, comes out to essentially 10% of the elect, more than 10% of the Electoral College, to give you an idea of, of the size of the country, um, you know, in terms of population and everything. It's, it's an enormous state, huge part of our economy. Um, so it's easy to say, hey, they've got all this influence. I found it particularly interesting the way that you talked about welfare to work with Wisconsin, where Tommy Thompson's program essentially redesigned welfare policy for the rest of the country. Because Wisconsin doesn't have the same influence or size within their state, yet they were able to have influence like that. Exactly. What's, what's interesting about that is that here was a, a push from the right. Tommy Thompson, a Republican governor, says, you know what, this, this welfare system that we've got just doesn't work. And what we need to do, he says, is to try to change the incentives, to create ways of getting people off welfare into jobs. But to do that, what we need to do is to invest in the process of getting people off welfare into jobs. And so it was an expansion of government's role in one area to try to reduce government's role in another. It turned out to be very successful. Again, this was a case of a policy that was advanced through waivers that were granted by the, uh, by the administration backed by Clinton. And what was fascinating here is you've got a, a, a conservative governor, Republican governor, getting a waiver from a Democratic administration to push forward what amounted to a path-breaking welfare reform that then became one of the few great points of agreement that Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton managed to have. And became the foundation of welfare reform across the rest of the country. And so what we see here is that this waiver process can happen not only from the right, but also from the left, from liberals, but also from conservatives, from Democrats as well as Republicans. And we see some of this happening as well in a related piece in what's happening with the Affordable Care Act, with the, a woman's right to choose, with abortion rights, and with a whole collection of other kinds of things where policies and experiments and individual initiatives and individual states end up essentially setting national policy. There's this old idea about creating states as laboratories of democracy, as, as Justice Brandeis said back in the 1920s. The question here is, uh, should we, can we, ought we to allow states to just experiment and see what it is that works? And the argument on the plus side, and increasingly is that, you know, sometimes it's worth 
trying this out before you try to do it to scale. And we've had a lot of policies, as we've been discussing, that have gone from the states to the feds and become national in the process. But that also has a cost to it, which is if you allow states to experiment, you got to learn from the results and do more of what works and less of what doesn't. But instead, what's happening increasingly is that instead, we're, we're driving the states in opposite directions because we're not nationalizing the successes. And in fact, in some cases, we're institutionalizing the failures. And that's one of the things that federalism is doing, unfortunately. It's driving a bigger wedge between us. And that's one of the big dangers that we face, I think, in the generation ahead. Now, I know you're a fan of Francis Fukuyama. Heard you talk about him before. Um, talked a little bit about him off uh, offset earlier. He writes a lot about state capacity and the need to be able to establish state capacity, um, both as a way of establishing just, you know, protecting rights and everything else, but also being an engine of economic growth. Uh, Amataria uh, Sen, he's written about that too, uh, in terms of developing countries. I noticed that the states that have some of the highest inequality oftentimes have some of the highest state capacity in terms of that. Is that because sometimes the investments in terms of their infrastructure actually help them accelerate economic growth long-term? And that some of the states that aren't investing in that maybe are missing out on opportunities long-term? There are a variety of things. In some cases, what's happening is that some of the states not investing in capacity are states where poverty is higher and when income is lower. And it's hard to tax people to spend money that they don't have. But the related question, as you point out, Justin, is perhaps it's the case that engaging in these kinds of efforts to try to expand state capacity, to expand the ability of government to get things done, also creates the kind of engine that increases economic growth. We have this, and I've had for a very long time, this debate and battle back and forth about, well, you know, maybe the thing to do is to get government out of the way and to allow the private sector simply to try to chart its own course. And that's a, this battle between government power and private power is one that we've had for ages. And the only problem is that there, we've never really given that experiment a, a full test uh, because we've always had government reliance on the private sector and the private sector reliance on government. Lots of people in the private sector like government protection, like government subsidies. Government, on the other hand, increasingly in the United States, that's one of the really characteristic things about government in the United States, relies lots on the private sector to get things done. So this question of capacity really has to do with this connection between them and in places like California and New York and other places where economic growth is high, there's been a, a much closer partnership and a more aggressive investment in state capacity to try to advance programs that are really designed more to try to help state along. And as a result of that, education creates better workers, better workers create stronger opportunities for economic growth, or economic growth makes things better off for everybody almost, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but uh, certainly by comparison to states that have said, we rely just on the private sector to drive things, we're not gonna have a government, we're not gonna invest in capacity. So we have healthcare that's not as good, education that's not as strong, prisons that lock up more people, violence that's higher, and so that we have as a result, a growing difference between the states. Now it's important to recognize that 
Even in places like California, which have been very aggressive, there are, are enormous amounts of inequality within the state that we have not been successful in many cases about being able to make sure that rising tides, in fact, lift all boats. That within San Francisco, for example, there is greater inequality than there is in many African countries. Uh, that, and that's because at the, the differences at the local level between neighborhoods and between some communities and others are also sources of inequality. Uh, what this really says is that it, it is the case that the government you get depends on where you live. And even in states that have been aggressive at investing in capacity, we have important and major tensions that have fueled pockets of inequality. But on the other hand, at the so taking one step up, it's hard to escape the conclusion that a big part of the story of inequality in the United States is the story of the differences between the states. Now, obviously, education is one of those areas that we have enormous inequality in. I just got done listening to a podcast that's uh, called uh, Nice White Parents that talked about inequality within the New York City school system. You were talking about inequality in San Francisco. I had no idea about the inequities within New York City's public school system that are um, that were dramatic. Um, I reviewed a book probably about a year ago, too, that was from um, a host of authors. It was edited by uh, Kimberly... Uh, Jenkins Robinson about a uh, federal right to education, talking a lot about inequities. Um, I know there was a Supreme Court case, San Antonio versus Rodriguez, that tried to pursue the idea that people have a right to education. How do you, do you see a role, a stronger role for the federal government to step in to be able to eliminate some of these inequities when it comes to uh, schooling and education? Or is, or is that something that, that we can resolve with the current decentralization that we have? Well, in some ways we've tried, George W. Bush, after all, tried with No Child Left Behind to do exactly that, to, to create a system where, in fact, no child was left behind. But the problem was that the, the program got hung up yet again on the complexities of its administration, that the question was, in a sense, what behind meant. It led to the system of testing, the system of trying to assess whether or not children were being left behind, what the level of educational attainment was, how good was educational quality, all in terms of outcomes. And what happened was in so many cases, the local, local schools found themselves having to try to produce lots of test results and standards to demonstrate how well they were doing, which led to incredible amounts of gaming in the system teaching to the test, teaching in ways that made the schools look good. And there were lots of people who said that, well, the numbers that you have for this don't really the outcomes that, in fact, that children are receiving in terms of their preparedness to be able to be good, productive citizens in society. And so we've gone back and we've revised No Child Left Behind. Uh, still is a lot of unhappiness with it. So that it's unquestionably the case that education is one of the bedrocks. It's unquestionably the case that there's enormous disparity. It's unquestionably the case that some of this is the product of the resources that local communities invest in local schools. And it's unquestionably the case that this then matters in terms of preparing children for the workforce and the jobs that they'll have and the ability of them to be able to create and support great families. The question is what to do about it. 
and our efforts to try to attack it have, have gotten hung up yet again on this question of, of federalism and what to do about it and about how to try to level out the differences. And the answer sometimes that's given is, well, it's, it's just a, mainly a matter of money. What creates lower quality schools is schools that don't have as much money to spend. Let's just give the poor schools more money. But there again, we have a twin battle. One is it's really hard to direct it where it's needed most and to make sure you get your money's worth. And there's this constant resistance to the idea of government is just too big already. We don't want to raise our taxes anymore. And so there is this battle fighting back in the other direction, not only at the federal level, but also at the state and local level, putting property tax revenue caps on so that, in fact, they're frustrated in their ability to be able to raise more tax dollars. So it's part of this underlying tension, but uh, we can talk about how to try to fix it. But we have to begin by recognizing that it really is a thing. And it's a product of these vast differences and tensions in all the threads of federalism. Let's touch on COVID-19. Um, the It seems that the resources people invested before the pandemic uh, into growing state capacity, into building trust in government, um, probably were very important to actually making something happen, maybe even more important than what the politicians um, said or did, or maybe it even influenced how the politicians approached it. Um, do you think that the, uh, the like some states you mentioned have greater capacity and have made those investments in different areas, do you think that influenced the uh, COVID-19 approach or was it literally the approach of the leaders in each one of the states and, and local governments? Yeah, I, th I think it's both. And to start out with, with something that occurred too late to include in the book, but which reinforces the, the conclusion is that there are big differences between the states that already were aggressive at moving forward on healthcare and the states that decided to lock down their economies early. And the states that locked down the economies early tended in general to have better results in the first phase. So to unpack that, they, there were about, uh, about two thirds of the states decided to lock down by the 1st of April. And the majority of those were states that in fact, also had decided to expand Medicaid as part of the Affordable Care Act. On the other hand, there were states that waited and waited and waited to lock down their economies until after the 1st of April. They tended disproportionately to be states that did not expand but, uh, Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. So there are big differences there, again, based on this underlying pattern, all part of a larger fabric, uh, had to do with the messaging that, again, many of these governors tried to Tried to add, tried to put forward because the states that locked down early also tended to have governors that said, look, this is an important thing. You need to be really careful. We're going to take aggressive action to stop the disease. And other states that came later tended to have governors that were, uh, that tended to say, this is not as big a thing. We're not going to do this. We're not going to punish people by locking down the economy. We're going to keep the economy going. And then it turned out, not surprisingly, that there were big differences in outcomes as a result that States that locked down earlier tended to have better early results. States that didn't tended to have more people who got sick faster. And so it's a question of leadership first that has to do with just what kind of government role should there be? And also the question of the way in which the state's decisions on COVID tended to fit within the broader fabric of what was already going on in healthcare in these states. So not only is this turning out to be the, 
the biggest crisis of, of a century, but it also is a series of issues where the states took the lead and states took the lead differently. And the way in which they led had to do with the rhetoric of their governors, but also more fundamentally had to do with the already ongoing patterns of what was happening in the states on healthcare in particular, but also in so many other areas as well. Now, you, you talk a lot about like the different outcomes. Is this something that's as simple as people just have different priorities? And so we're producing like the, we're producing good outcomes in some areas, poor outcomes in others, but it's, it's a choice. Or is this simply that people um, that we're making, that we're getting poor outcomes across the board or poor outcomes in specific areas, because these are just the raw approaches and the wrong choice. In lots of cases, what's, what's really interesting and something that actually frankly surprised me, uh, I started looking around at the patterns of inequality between the states. And I asked myself, are there, are there patterns here of some kind? And the answer is it turned out in health, well, not surprisingly, income, childbirth, uh, issues of child welfare, issues of, then I started looking, how about crime? How about environment? And it turns out that everywhere I looked and in areas that I didn't include in the book as well, that there were big differences and the differences tend to break down in the same kinds of lines. Now, that's a, whenever you start taking that large review, there are going to be lots of exceptions and some variations. But what really struck me was that the underlying story is that there are patterns that the states that tend to do well in some areas tend to do well also in others, vice versa, the states that tended not to do so well, didn't so, do so well in lots of others as well. And so it's, whether it's, it's crime or corrections or education or health, there are big differences that are increasingly separating the states from each other. So now the question is, well, why is that? Sometimes it's clearly the case that states just simply can't afford it. Uh, Mississippi and Alabama, for example, tend to rank low on most of the rankings. And the reason in part surely is because there are places where poverty is also higher and where government resources are lower. There's also less government willingness to try to do that. But the issue that we have is to what degree do we have a national responsibility to level out some of these differences in income so that people have greater opportunity regardless of where they live? That's an important national debate that frankly we're not really having. But then the other question is to what degree should we rely on the judgment of people in individual states, because at some point we're going to have to ask, do we want to try to push states to do things that otherwise they might not want to do? And that's one of the stories of the Affordable Care Act that's important because it really sets up choices by states that in many cases uh, put them financially better off, but which they finally decided not to embrace because they just didn't want to do this big government thing having to do with healthcare. So it's not only a matter of leveling out the financial differences. It sometimes has to do with these basic philosophies about what government ought to do. It, it's difficult for me, though, because the states you mentioned, Mississippi, Alabama, continue to put up walls against making some of these changes on the federal level. They're some of the biggest opponents to saying, hey, let's get some resources to us. Um, it's, it's some of the same thing that I, I struggled with when I read uh, Deaths of Despair because it's writing about um, the, uh, the struggles of, of poor working class whites and how they're having worse health outcomes right now 
And their solution was to say, hey, we need to have um, some form of universal health care uh, or, or investments in health care in terms of the country. Yet the people they were trying to help were the people that were opposed to their policy solution. It just, it felt like there was a disconnect there. Um, how do we, how do we get there when we've got, when some of the states that are, have the highest levels of, of poverty or some of the ones most resistant to, uh, to change? Yeah, and that's a great question. One of the things that I think is the case is that even the states that have decided not to try to em- embrace the expansion of the Affordable Care Act, uh, rarely are there cases of people who would benefit from it, people in particular lower incomes, to, uh, to say, you know what, uh, you're talking about giving me more health care, but I think I'll pass on that. There, in many cases, there are state officials who are making the decisions on behalf of, uh, of everyone where, in fact, uh, not everyone will benefit in the same kind of way. So, so I think that's, a, that's an important piece to try to note. That the people who most would benefit from these decisions are not the people who are in charge of making it because they're marginalized in the, in the discussion and, and in the debates. So there's, there's that part of issue that goes on as well. But then it really is the case that uh, because of the underlying political problems that we have, the underlying, underlying political tensions, the underlying political, political inequalities, that many of the people who would most benefit are marginalized in the debates. Uh, people who uh, may be uh, true blue conservatives who would benefit from better health care are also people in some cases who believe in smaller government and a less aggressive governmental role. That has to do more fundamentally with questions of trust and fundamentally with issues of, of ideology. And issues of trust themselves are ones that are things that, uh, that are difficult to try to uproot because they have to do much broader, much more broadly with the underlying problems of the way in which government in the United States is, is constructed and the way in which people are represented and the way in which political power is happening. You know, one of the things that, that increasingly is the case is that the, the views that individuals have is a product of the echo chambers in which they live. And people who are in favor of particular kinds of policies like Medicare for all tend for the most part to talk to each other. People who are opposed tend to talk to each other. Rarely do they talk to each other where the two sides connect with it across those boundaries. The same is true on almost everything. And Trump supporters tend to talk to only Trump supporters. Uh, Democrats interested in trying to drive Trump out of office tend to only talk to each other. And one of the great challenges of trying to find ways of bridging the gap is that we have a political discourse that's increasingly divided as well. That's the product of the very same sets of forces. And that only complicates the problem of trying to solve these problems that we're talking about here. How do you think we break through that to uh, increase levels of, of trust? I mean, that's something that comes up in the literature all the time from uh, Fukuyama yet again, but um, Robert Putnam talks a lot about that and uh, did that critical study in Italy where Southern Italy, Italians, um, including Sicily, um, are incredibly distrustful of other people. And so they struggle to be able to both increase their economy and increase, uh, you know, government capacity, make it work. Whereas Northern Italians do much better. And that's the reason why they're much more industrialized, have a stronger economy um, due to levels of trust. How do we, 
increase levels of trust so that we can, you know, improve some of these problems then. And this is, in many ways, one of the most fundamental challenges we face in American democracy these days, because the level of trust is bad and unfortunately getting worse. Uh, there was a poll actually in the Washington Post a few years ago. This is a for real poll. They asked people who they, they expl- that they talked to to compare Congress with head lice. And Congress had a lower popularity than even head lice, believe it or not. Uh, so they're... The problem is bad, it's gotten worse. But one of the things, and this is something that is some, that cuts great to the core of federalism, federalism as well, is that the trust in the federal government to solve problems is about 18%. Trust in the state and local governments to solve problems is, has been consistently in the 60 and 70%. And so we tend to trust the government that's closest. The other thing too is that uh, McKinsey has been doing some research on what shapes trust in government. And it turns out that they argue that the thing that matters most is citizens' interaction with government on particular services. But 76% or so, according to one survey, and about 67% in another, has to do with the basics of citizens' interaction with government. So we can say pretty confidently that while we don't trust government as a whole, we sure trust the things that fact, we interact with that tend to work well. Uh, the, the most trustworthy individuals in any government anywhere in the world turns out to be firefighters, because as it turns out that when something bad happens and we say call 911, the firefighters show up in the scene, they either put out the fire or take us to the emergency room. And most people say, you know, that's pretty good. And because it works well almost all the time. And so trust is the product of the interaction between citizens and government and the quality that they serve. Turns out citizens see that, they know that, they recognize it, they know good stuff, they don't like bad stuff. And you put that together, what that really says is that, you know, this is a problem that we can solve, but it means really focusing on the quality of government at the grassroots level and building the capacity to deliver results, which could not be a more fundamental question of federalism. That, that's one that, that Franklin and Adams and Jefferson and Hamilton would all recognize as being absolutely essential because it's one of the things that they worried a lot about themselves. So this kind of brings me to a point that, that I think makes a lot of sense to kind of talk about. The, I started out by asking you why federalism doesn't work. And I did that because, I mean, that's literally the subtitle of your book. <laughs> so I think that's a that's fair right. question. Yeah. So that's a fair question. Um, but it, by saying, Hey, why doesn't it work that a lot of people would say, well, what do we need to, to do to save it and make it so that it does? But I found it interesting because you write in your book, as long as the American constitutional Republic exists, there will be federalism. So it doesn't really need to be saved. Uh, the fundamental questions then becomes one about the mechanisms shifting the balance of power in the system. And, and that kind of, that's kind of a razor where it's got two different sides to it. One is, hey, we, this isn't something that we need to make sure exists. It's going to exist. But then on the other hand, if it's not working, um, it's not something we can just toss away and get rid of. We need to figure out how to make it succeed. Um, you write a little bit in your book about uh, Hamilton's solution. Can you talk a little bit about the reforms you think are necessary to bring about a fifth generation of federalism? 
Yeah, and that's sort of a great question because, first of all, it's important to recognize that it is such an important question. It's not as if we can will this away or by ignoring it, the problems are going to resolve themselves. In all likelihood, unless we attack this directly, the situation that we've been discussing, that's only going to get worse. And that's not a place where we'd want the country to be, certainly not what, what Madison and Jefferson and Hamilton and the others had in mind at the beginning. They really saw this as a vibrant, lively system. So what do we do now to keep it vibrant and lively? The first thing I think is just to, to put the question squarely on the table. And it's clear that Americans even have a little bit of an appetite for this because otherwise, uh, how in the world could Hamilton on Broadway have gotten $2,000 a seat for tickets for people who were scalping out of the sidewalk. So that it goes to show that there are that people are willing to talk about it. And, and just a side note, by the way, for those of you who are Hamilton fans, that one of the, the big rules about Broadway shows is that you got to have great music to kick things off, but you always got to bring the audience back after the intermission. And so the second act begins with a song about federalism. It's one of the best songs in the show. It's the room where it happens, where Hamilton and Madison and Jefferson are talking about how to try to allocate power between the federal government and the states, where to put the new capital of the U.S. And so the, the, the big boffo opening for the second act is about federalism. So it, it goes to show people do have an appetite for talking about this. But, but what do we do? And I think that the problem is if we leave it alone, we're going to end up with growing inequality. And there's a lot of evidence that growing inequality is one of the most disruptive destructive forces afoot in American politics these days. And it tends to feed a lot of the distrust about government. So if we're going to try to make government work better, we've got to solve that problem. And to solve that problem, we have to realize that we have the roots in federalism. So there's no way out of talking about it. What do we do? And I think one of the things we do is to think about those things that are most important in driving differences between citizens that matter most fundamentally. So that means looking especially at the question of healthcare for starters. There's nothing more fundamental. And we have a strong case that we're spending more and getting less. And a lot of the reason why, especially healthcare for the, the lower income folks in society is in the kind of sad shape that it's in and why so many people don't have health insurance at all to begin with is the product of the fact that we have the system that is so administratively complex and leaves so many people out. Whether that means Medicare for all, uh, I'm not sure I want to embrace that program in particular, but at least talking about a major federal program that is aimed squarely at leveling the differences among citizens and among the states with a system that administratively is not going to gobble up such a large percentage of our healthcare spending. I mean, that has to be, I think, a fundamental going forward. We have to look at those things that have to drive basic opportunity, and that gets, takes you to education. You have to look at those things that have to do with the quality of life and problems that tend to float over state lines, whether we like it or not. And that gets us to questions of the environment. So thinking about a national debate about national policies designed explicitly to level out the differences among the states and between citizens on those issues is something that's important. And also to recognize that the answer is just not to say, okay, uh, say California's got it under control and therefore we want to do what California needs to do because there are are big levels of inequality within California as well. So this really calls for a national policy out of Washington, not big government per se, but a government that focuses on those things of inequality that matter most because those are the forces that are most likely ultimately to 
undermine trust in government and to, to frustrate the ability of America to be in 2050 what we want it to be. Well, I, I think that that's a good, uh, good note to end on. Um, I, I really liked how your book brought out some of the challenges that we have. Um, I don't want to delve into public poli- any specific public policy like Medicare for All or anything because whenever you talk about public policy, the solution can simply be, hey, we just need to tweak this or tweak that. Um, in terms of the broader ideas, um, there are some real issues that we need to be able to work through in terms of the United States to say, um, to be able to make some of these big ideas work. And I don't know that there's enough attention brought to those. Um, and I think you had some great ideas on how to be able to make those ideas work. Um, uh, whether you're liberal, whether you're uh, conservative, um, you know, we need to be able to find more efficient ways to be able to make some of this, uh, some of these ideas work out and how to make democracy succeed. So it's a great conversation to have with you, Don. I uh, Justin, I really appreciate it. And as, as I think I, I mentioned to you at one point, I, I wrote this book in part to try to figure out what I thought about this. I, I've spent a lot of time in the course of my career circling around this issue of federalism. And you hear stories about authors that write books because there's a point they want to make. This is a case of an author who wrote a book to try to figure out what he thought about this because I, no, <laughs> I had no idea where I was going to end up when I started. I figured this was, this was an important thing and I wanted to try to figure out what I thought about it. And the deeper that I got in, the more it became clear that this was the thing I needed to think and the thing that I needed to say. And to underline the point about why the debate is so fundamentally important. So I, Justin, I really appreciate the chance to be able to explore some of these things with you today. All right. Well, thank you so much. Good talking. You take good care. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Gene Schneider at Princeton University Press, who provided a copy of The Divided States of America and put me in touch with Don. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.